0: Hello and welcome to The Promise of Discovery, a podcast where members and investigators at the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center talk about their research in intellectual and developmental disabilities. Good afternoon. I'm Elise McMillan, Director of the Vanderbilt Kennedy University Center for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities, and I'm here today with Ann Kaiser. She's the Susan Gray Chair in Education and Human Development, a professor of special education and psychology, and a Vanderbilt Kennedy Center investigator. Welcome, Ann.
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: We're so excited to talk to you today about your work and research with the Kid Talk Project. But before we get into that, I'd like to know just a little bit more about you. Could you talk about
1: some about your position here at Vanderbilt and how long you've been here? I've been here for a very long time, which is great, and I'm a professor in special education, in my area is early childhood special education, so my research kind of comes out of working in that area. And I've been lucky enough to do lots of different jobs at Vanderbilt, including directing the family research program in the Kennedy Center and serving as the faculty director for the Susan Gray School, along with M.L. Himeter and you know, if you stay long enough you get to do every good job there is to do here so I've been really lucky
0: and you've done a great job in in the many different roles that you mentioned how did you first get interested in research and in working in this whole area of disabilities
1: well I like to tell you that I had a good life plan but it wasn't like that so as you know I have a younger brother who has autism And typical of many siblings, I felt like I had done my time with autism and disability and that I would like to do something really different from that. And I was pretty sure I was going to be a civil rights lawyer and kind of on my way on that trajectory. And then I got a job as a research assistant because I needed money and found out that it was possible to have a job as a researcher. And that was a life-changing point for me. Changed my program, ended up getting a PhD in developmental psychology. And then the other big turning point was as a postdoc, I wrote this project to observe kids living in a residential treatment center. And even though I had grown up around kids with disabilities and was really comfortable with disability, I had never seen kids living in residential treatment before and my study was about how staff interacted with these children and literally after two weeks uh, it was clear to me I needed to do early intervention research because I didn't want another kid to ever live there and it's not that the staff weren't good or kind, it's that they never talked to these kids and the kids never talked to them and there were no opportunities to learn language in particular. So right after that, we started Language Project Preschool, and everything else I've done for the last 30 years sort of unfolded from that.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. I I never knew some of that background. I knew you were a sibling and that this area was important to you. So that does lead us to more to talk more specifically about Kid Talk. And could you tell us more about what
1: that is, what all it entails? So Kid Talk's our community name. Uh, We have, for... As long as I've been here and while I was at the University of Kansas, been interested in how young children learn language and the role that their parents and partners, their siblings, their peers, their teachers play in teaching them language. So Kid Talk is the umbrella for a series now of um, quite a few studies that have looked at how do we teach partners to support language learning in young kids who have identified disabilities, including primary language delays, autism, Down syndrome, as you know, and cleft lip and palate, and a range of other physical and mental conditions that have led to language being delayed at the onset. So we do mainly parent training. We work with parents of kids under three, for the most part, at home, pay people a lot of money to drive around in the Nashville traffic to do home <laughs> visiting. And, and the reason that we do that is that typical language is learned in natural environments. And so everything we do in Kid Talk is done where kids live and learn and to support the adults and peers that live and learn with them. So, what made you, what led you to the,
0: this idea that it was so important to have the parental involvement and that this was not something
1: that could just be done at the school or in the childcare setting? Well, first, I mean, all of this comes from typical development and what we know about how language is normally learned. Um, so, we know that typical kids learned language in the first two years of life, largely from their caregivers largely in intimate, relationship, interest-based interactions. And so for kids that have language delays, we know that that time of language learning is longer, but they still need that relational, tailored, intimate input from someone, and the most likely people are parents because they spend the most time with them and because they have that reciprocal caring relationship that's the motivation for learning to communicate. And that doesn't mean that other people can't play a role. I mean, I want teachers to play a role in that, but early on, you need that social emotional foundation for learning that parents can provide. The other thing I would say about that is that, of course, no one ever planned to have a child who needed extra support for language learning. It's not that parents do something wrong that causes kids not to learn language. It's that if kids come with varying abilities, they need more, more relationship, more organized input, more opportunity to practice, more interest driven conversations than typical kids. And there's no reason anyone would know that if they weren't an absolutely nerdy interactional researcher or they had spent a very long time studying development. There's no reason. So it's like in typical kids, adults are pretty well prepared to adapt. But if your child is a hard learner, he's not social, or he's very social, but not verbal, or he's having trouble learning to speak, or any number of things, there's no reason you would know as a parent how to adapt to that. So that's where we come in. We teach parents how to do more of what they would normatively do, but for this kid who needs specialized input or support.
0: So could you describe one of those sessions when you do go through the traffic into one of those homes? What's that like for the parent and for the child?
1: Well, I hope it's good for everybody. Let me say that our goal is for those home visits to be fun and informative and for everybody to feel good at the end of them. So a typical home visit begins with talking to the parent about what they've been doing and how their child has been doing and asking them today, what what would you like to work on? We have an agenda, but let's hear what's important for routines, let's hear what's important for toys, and how's this going with you? And then after we've listened to the parent for a good while, we usually set up some place that we can work with the child, and often that's on the floor, on a little rug, some kids at a table, but usually, usually we're on the floor with toys that the child likes, and some organization that makes it easy for the the mother. Usually, although we have trained lots of dads, as you know, um, to sit down together in a, a relatively quiet space and just be face to face and close to things that they like to do, and. We developed over the years a really systematic way of teaching parents that involves teach, which usually is reviewing information, modeling with the child a little bit, and then letting the parent practice for the majority of the session with coaching and feedback, and then some time at the end of that practice uh, to review what happened for the parent to ask questions and together to make a plan for the rest of the session. Typical session, we play with toys, usually really good fun toys. We know a lot about toys. Um, We do some routines that the family's chosen, like make a snack, or it's true, we've given lots of kids baths because (laughs) bath time is a fun time to work together or getting the mail or feeding the dog or whatever the family would normally do and we work on language that works for both the parent and the child in that and recently we've really spent a lot of time developing some new protocols for shared book reading that are appropriate to the child's level and are differentially supportive depending on what the parent needs so we've now spent about 45 minutes doing things that are mostly fun for the child all of them relatively brief, um, parent-led, but following the child's interests and and lasting as long as the child is really interested in what you're doing with um, practice-based coaching, basically. And usually we see parents a lot. (laughs) We see them on average maybe 30 or 40 times at home. So over that time, we move from really simple strategies that are um, sort of foundational and social to things that are about really specific linguistic input that their child is ready to learn. And we try and make it fun, but also focused so everybody comes away from it feeling like that was time well spent in terms of the child has learned something, the parent has learned something, and the home visitor has been able to communicate something important for the parent and the child.
0: Are there differences, um, and and we realize every child is different. Everyone's an individual. But you mentioned early on talking with students, our our young children on the autism spectrum, some with Down syndrome. Others, are, are there differences you can see through your work and research?
1: There are, and you know I think there are differences at two levels. So there are differences by disability, which I would call maybe phenotypical differences. So kids with Down syndrome have all that yummy social part, but they have a really hard time paying attention to language and social. In contrast, kids with autism have much harder time with the social part of the interaction, but many of them are pretty good language learners because they can pay attention to the auditory signal and they can map words onto objects and meaning pretty easily. So you tailor a little bit differently for those two kinds of kids. Um, So there's that general type but then there's this tiny human in front of you and every one of them is different and that so you kind of we have a protocol for kids with autism but here's this little person who may be very different from this other little person and what one parent is struggling with with their child may not be an issue for another parent. So that's why we're asking parents what's going well, what's not going so well, where do you need help, and we tailor we tailor both to the child and to the parent. And that's you know that's the art part of the science, which is how. And part of our goal right now is to really articulate those broad phenotypic differentiated strategies, and then also to articulate the decision-making that goes into what and how do you teach. I'll give you a good example of that. So we just finished a study with 92 newly diagnosed two-year-olds with autism. And the only criteria was that they had an autism diagnosis and that was it. And so that turns out to be a hugely heterogeneous group of kids. So we had everybody from kids that were, really looked a lot like our language delayed kids, but had gotten an autism diagnosis, to kids who were not yet regulated at all, they're running around, they don't really like adults very much, they don't have any spoken language, they might not have a lot of gesture, and they're really not interested in toys, and they're really not interested in us. So for those families, goal one is to get through the day. So how can we help this mom or this dad with positive behavior support and environmental arrangements that just make life easier? So we might work on routines first with those families. How can we get through mealtime? How can we get through bath time? How can we get through bedtime? With a little bit of talk and input and lots of just how do we make this routine work? With the kids kind of in different places or when this kid learns some of those basic skills then we're going to talk much more about what language to model and how to prompt language and how to expand language and All of those sorts of things but you can't go to linguistic input until you get the interaction working different kids need different things to help that happen
0: what kind of work are you doing on scaling this up as you've already alluded to our family was very lucky to participate in this research early on we happen to live here in Nashville we were very near the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center but what how do you get this out way beyond Nashville?
1: Well, good question. So, first of all, we're not the only people that do this kind of work. I was telling you earlier that I just came back from a big meeting of about 300 people, all of whom are interested in this kind of work, and parent training is a really big part of that conversation. So, we have taken the approach of doing lots of research and publishing it because we wanted to build the evidence base for it, but we've also trained lots of people in the community, and we continue to offer training, a lot of training for parents, and we've trained a lot of students who can be Part C providers and who can um, work in early childhood special ed. and.
0: We need to probably explain to the audience Part C.
1: So Part C is the state-provided services for children under the age of three that are very similar in delivery to what we've been talking about. They're typically home-based. They're provided by someone with developmental expertise, they might also be provided by a speech-language therapist or a physical therapist, but often these are developmental therapists whose role is to support both the child and the parent. And we've been very lucky to work with Part C in Tennessee and in Nashville, and a lot of our kids are referred to us, and we've done training for Part C in return for that and are always interested in doing more of that.
0: Um. What comes next in your research interest and for the work that you're doing?
1: Well, I'll tell you what we're doing right now, which is super challenging, and thank goodness I have wonderful collaborators. So thing one (laughs) is that for kids where the Social Communication Foundation is pretty solid, we really need to look at the long-term language outcomes and increase the precision and the dosage of linguistic input. So these are kids that are, you know, doing pretty well in the scheme of things, but who have persistent problems in language that then show up as problems in reading, in social relationships, in other academics. And so we need longer, more tailored interventions with them.
0: And explain what you mean by linguistic input.
1: So... I mean two things, vocabulary and sentences, right? Remember fourth grade when you're drawing the diagram of those sentences like that doesn't make any sense? Well, somehow humans are able to learn grammar in really complicated ways to express meaning with word order and all sorts of things. But kids who have even a mild language impairment, things like marking plurals and marking subject and verb agreements, really hard and beginning to form sentences that have clauses or multiple parts to them really hard. Well, you need those when you get to school and your teacher's talking about math or talking about history or talking about social studies. If you don't understand how complex language works, you're gonna miss a lot of language of instruction. And even kids with mild language delays, that's really hard for them. So, we're now doing this study starting with kids at 30 months for 18 months, bless these parents' hearts, trying to move children through those early stages of grammar. So, we're laying the foundation for narrative conversations and for reading. And this is one of the first studies that's been that long and has involved parents that deeply in teaching that more complex kind of language. What I think this is, is a model for other populations. It's just this is the place to start. So that's a whole lot of fun. We have a whole bunch of toddlers in our lab and they're really fun and these are great parents and I hope they like us at the end of the study because they will have seen us a lot of times at their house. And then the other population that we're interested in is low income Spanish speaking families, particularly immigrant families. Who have a child who has a language delay. So, in the general population, somewhere between 10 and 15 percent of kids have difficulty learning language. And that's probably also true for children who are low income and bilingual. We don't have as much precise data on that. So, we're teaching parents in Spanish at home. Um, how to support their child's language development when their child is delayed in in both languages, in both English and Spanish. So that is also a lot of fun and has a lot of new challenges in that we've learned more about Spanish grammar than I ever thought I would know, which I had a low baseline, so that's not surprising. And it's also been interesting to work in a different culture and a different language with families who have good parenting but somewhat different styles of parenting from the typical white middle class parents that we've worked with a lot in our other studies. And we finished a little, very small study and then a kind of medium-sized study, so now we're doing a, a fairly large for us study with those families. And we're just at the beginning of that, and it's, it's really challenging for us but fortunately, I have really good therapists who are native Spanish speakers. And that turns out to be just a really critical part of that.
0: And so I know in some of your studies, they're multi-site.
1: In some, they're in this area only. Is that a multi-site study? No. <laughs> this, this is a Nashville-only study. Although when we were in California, we were wishing that we lived in California because there are just many more families that speak Spanish there. But yeah.
0: So do you speak Spanish yourself?
1: No, I don't and I I understand Spanish because I speak a little bit of French, but I am like cramming with a grammar book. But my project coordinator is Tatiana Pareto, who is fluent in Spanish, and I have a speech-language pathologist who is fluent in Spanish, and a couple of really good graduate students who are Spanish speakers. So I feel like I'm learning as much as anybody is learning in that study. But it's so important to do that work, and even though I don't feel like we're as well-prepared for it as I would want to be, these are such underserved families, underidentified kids with real needs, underserved families. And the main barrier is having personnel who are multilingual to work with them, right? And so I'm hoping that we can build some capacity here at Vanderbilt. I know the Kennedy Center has worked hard to have some capacity to serve those families. It feels like a really important thing to do at this time.
0: It Yes, it does. We'll have to stay updated on that work.
1: So... You have this radiantly successful son with Down syndrome, and I know that you've benefited from lots of research in the Kennedy Center and lots of services. What would you say to parents about participating in research, and when is it a good idea? When was it not a good idea? Do you regret any of it?
0: Um, That's a really good question. Um, And as you alluded to, but but I'll explain, we were very lucky after our son, Will, was born that we learned, I think, at the, uh, where he was getting childcare, we saw a flyer for your, I think it was called the Milieu Language Project at the time, and thought, well, that sounds interesting. and. Um, particularly now, this was 30 years ago. You do hear, as a family with a my member with Down syndrome, how communication will be a struggle. And so we thought this sounded so important. And I, I can't tell you how important that study and participation has been. Um, anybody who knows Will knows that he speaks very well and a lot. And I, you know, I just can't help but think how things would have been different had we not um, had the opportunity to participate. So that really set, I I think that was such a good experience for Will, for my husband. Uh, As you said, Tom was the one who was participating much more than I did at the time. It really set the tone of how important research can be. But I think there were some things in there. You alluded several times during your discussion to you pay attention to the parents and ask them how is it going, what's important to them. When you have that kind of research partnership, there is not, there is no bad research to participate in. Um, and so I think that kind of helped us learn what can our expectations be if we're, we're participating in research. So what I would tell families is look at that. First of all, is it something that's important to you? Talk to the research personnel ask the questions what's the timing what are the expectations you do have to balance I think Um, any family with young children is busy particularly if you're a family who has a young child with disabilities you'll be that much busier but so I would look at those kinds of things but I, I can say overall it's the participation that we've had in research has uh, just been a blessing to our families. And Will is a real proponent of families participating in research. Because at the end of the day, many of the developments, the, the really good developments in the area of Down syndrome have been because of researchers like you and then because of families who were willing to participate.
1: So I was at this meeting earlier this week, and literally every researcher there, all of whom do applied work, kind of like I do, begins their presentation with a thank you to the families and the children that have participated. And I just, I want to say that we have nothing to say without families, and that that's just, I've been so lucky in the Kennedy Center and at Peabody how accessible the campus can be, how welcoming the Kennedy Center has been to families, and that that makes... An enormous difference in the quality of work that we can do
0: absolutely because um, as you know um, but it's so important to families um, to find out about other resources perhaps to find out about other research that can benefit them and I think that's what a center like this the Kennedy Center can bring to the table so, so I'll, I'll turn back to ask you maybe a closing question. And, and you've alluded to it some about, the, um, about what being part of the Kennedy Center can bring. But what do you see kind of for the future, for the next steps, both in terms of working with the center and with the kind of answers that we can come to in this whole area of disabilities research? Wow.
1: You know, on the one hand, it is such an exciting time because we have learned so much and i think that the critical thing now is how can we make this accessible to people so what have we learned about dissemination we've learned that one-shot talks don't do any good whatsoever and one-day workshops don't help teachers very much and so i think thinking together about the kinds of continuing education that we can offer to the community that takes advantage of everything that the researchers here have learned about how to help adults change their behavior. Because really so much of what we do is about the kids, but the the way in which we change children and support children is always through adults, and actually changing adults is way harder than changing children because we live in complex environments and we have lots of kids in our classrooms or in our communities. And so I think the role of the center in really leading those new models of extended training and recertification and professional development that takes advantage of the really good work that has gone on here, both in terms of content And in terms of what we know about supporting professionals in context, so important. And the other thing I would say, influenced by our good friend, Carol Westlake, is that it's so critical that the center is at the policy table, always, and is advocating for the best services for kids, the best research for all of us, and accessibility in the community, That voice is so critical to what families will actually be able to experience from all of this.
0: Well said, it's all very important. Well, thank you very much for being with us here today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Promise of Discovery. Be sure to visit the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center website at vkc.vumc.org. To learn more about today's episode, and tune in next time for more on the innovative research in intellectual and developmental disabilities from the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center.